Alright, let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for today and for all the people that uh, are here already in Sunday School. And I just pray that you bless our interactions today, that you bless our worship this morning. Help us to honor you and to give you all the glory and all the focus. I do pray just that you um, fill us all with your Holy Spirit and uh, give me voice to do all the teaching I need to do today. Give this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, um, I'm going to take a quick slip of water if you don't mind. This is why I brought The only thing that strikes me as being more ridiculous than having to pay for bottled water is when you go to a gas station and have to pay for air for your tires. That bugs me. Um, Wait a minute, it takes electricity to run that pump. You, you got to pay for the electricity and the equipment and the maintenance. Come on. That's why I go to Casey's, it's free. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I saw Sarah's uh, PowerPoint from last week. She did an awesome job, which is cool. Gave you guys a little culture and some pictures for a change, which is good. Because um, apparently... You give us lots of great pictures. That's what I said, she laughed, and she's... Just because it's the same one for every council. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the same church. one for all the... the <laughs> I change it every time we go to one of these. The ancient church had one thing, the middle, early Middle Ages had another, this had another one. I said you were doing a great job. I'm totally getting into a new one starting the Renaissance in the fall. So, um, Anyway. Okay. So we're, we're still in the, in, in the 13th century because there's a lot going on in the 13th century. Just in the first... Remember the, the beginning, the two weeks, three weeks ago, because of Easter, three weeks ago, when we were in the beginning of the 13th century, there was just a lot going on. I was telling Sarah that I, I'd hope to maybe spend, you know, two weeks on the on the 12th century, two weeks on the 13th century, and I forgot there's like seven crusades in these two centuries alone, and Randy would hurt me if I didn't talk about the crusades, right? Exactly. So, lots of bad things going on here at the beginning of the 13th century. Just a quick recap of what we talked about last time, we talked about the fourth crusade. You remember, which was a lot of no fun, a lot of mistakes going on. Pope Innocent III wanted to fix things. He wanted to be the guy who made everything work right. He's going to fix the Holy Land and retake all of that, but nobody wanted to go. Everybody was busy fighting each other, except for the Venetians. They said, yes, we're happy to help out with the Fourth Crusade. We'll convoy everybody. That'll be great. But the reason that they did that was because they wanted to get back at Constantinople and raid all of Constantinople's ports on the way down there. Constantinople being a Christian kingdom, right? But Venice has some, some bugaboos with them that we talked about the last time. In fact, the um, the exile who had been the exile or, or emperor who had been deposed from, from Constantinople, Alexius, convinced them to actually go and raid Constantinople. So the Fourth Crusade was actually attacking other Christians. And not even necessarily because they're doing it wrong, but just because Politically, that made a certain amount of sense to things, to people. So they burned, they raped, they pillaged throughout that last little bit of Greek civilization, annihilated all of, of Constantinople, took it over, and established what was now being referred to as the Latin Empire of the East. Totally different empire. And the, the, the last little bits of what had been the Byzantine Empire, or, the, or, or Constantinople, moved east and became the, the Nicene Empire, but it was kind of a weak empire. They never made it to the Holy Land. So, wacky fun there. Your crusade was to sack your own town, which is not a lot of fun. At the same time that this is going on, we had Genghis Khan rising to power, right? 
we had a lot of fun talking about him last time. Made him unstoppable, never lost a battle. One, just laid waste throughout all of Central Europe, Asia, took over a land that dwarfed anything that Rome had ever had. I mean, this, this is his empire by the time he died. Huge, huge empire. Killed 40 million people. So, I mean, in, in the... Oh, for crying out loud. Uh, so, in, in, you know, in those special enclaves where all the great mass murderers of history sit around and talk, Pol Pot and uh, Adolf Hitler and, and uh, Joseph Stalin still had that. They all said, you know, I killed six million of my own people. I killed eight million of my own people. Forty million. And they're like, uh, man. We're not inviting Timogen to this anymore. So, forty million people. That's 11% of the world's population at the time. One out of every ten people murdered by uh, Genghis Khan and his Mongols. That's, that's going to make a dent. That's going to make a dent. And especially since it's all in one basic area, what he did was he took out all these different cities, all these uh, specifically Eastern Christian cities in Asia, took out what was left of Eastern Orthodoxy's educated leadership. So, like I was saying here, between the Fourth Crusade and Genghis Khan, those first 25 years of the 13th century just annihilated them. For those that wonder, well, golly, you know, why do we talk a lot about Western Christianity and not as much about Eastern Christianity in terms of its effect on world history? 25 years at the beginning of the 13th century annihilated Eastern Christianity. Or think of it this way. For the first 1,200 years, Eastern Christianity was centered strangely in the East, right? You know, in, in uh, uh, Alexandria, in Jerusalem, in uh, Constantinople, eventually. Is that, when you think of Eastern Orthodoxy, is that the mental picture you normally get? Do you normally think Jerusalem and uh, and Constantinople? Or when you think of modern Eastern Christianity, do you normally think like, what, like Russian Orthodox? Why is that? It's because of these 25 years at the beginning of the 13th century. Why is it that when you think of the main bastions of power of Eastern Orthodoxy, you think Russia? Because the Rus were about the only people that didn't get annihilated by the Mongols. The Rus that had accepted Eastern Orthodoxy held on to it and were strong enough to hold on to um, their own cities and things. But the Rus did get did get pounded on by the Mongols. We'll talk about that some other time. But, so, Vikings kept alive. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, who was, we're going back quite a bit, but... Um, there was a letter to the Pope saying this great guy was going to come. Prester John. Prester John. Okay. Uh, the tapes I listened to, he says some historians have the theory that they were talking about Genghis Khan. Because there were churches out there and they saw his rise and thought he was going to, he at the time was taking care of some of the Muslims. And sure. And so they they wrote the letter thinking that Genghis Khan was going to be their savior. There, there's, there are two or three different people in history that people go, oh, I wonder if that's it. Um, and there's two different ways of looking at that. You could either look at it as, is this the guy that they thought was Prester John, or did this feed all that? But by the time he, Prester John, the Prester John letter was long before, before yes. Genghis. But when Genghis came along, people went, ooh, is that Prester John? Or um, uh, his nephew, when he came up, they went, ooh, is that Prester John? There are various people that, even hundreds of years later, that rose to power, and people went, ooh, maybe that's Prester John. Um, the uh, uh, 
golly, I've gone blank as to his name, but his mentor, who was a Christian king uh, or, or Khan over his tribe, there are a lot of people going, ooh, is that Prester John? So, I mean, there's, the, the, but the fact is, everybody's looking for somebody to rise up and fix everything. Of course, Innocent wanted to be that guy. Innocent wanted to be the guy that rose up to fix everything. I don't need a Prester John. I can do this. And so, one last little bit of review from last time. We had the Albigensian Crusade. Really wanted to be, to, 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 and I, want, I want to do a crusade on somebody. Somebody somewhere needs to get a crusade on their butt. So, if we can't do this over on, on, in the Holy Land, let's turn to France. We've got those Cathars, remember the Albigensians, who believe kind of a weird neo-Gnosticism thing. And the Waldensians, guys who followed Peter Waldo, who totally rocked. We love the Waldensians. These guys were great. He's like, yeah, this we can do. We may not be able to take the Holy Land, but we can take France back from the French. So let's do that. He called upon Simon de Montfort, who, who had shown his integrity by not taking part in the Fourth Crusade. This is the guy that went back and said, I'm not doing this. This is a craft crusade. He's like, okay, you're in France. I want you to go fix France. This went on for 50 years, almost 50 years. Anybody who was even a possible heretic without trial gets slaughtered. Really a problem. And, and, and this is important to remember once we start getting into talking about like the Inquisition. As horrific as we think of it as the Inquisition, it's a step up from this because at least you get a trial. And so, everything in its context, see where these things are coming from. These people are getting slaughtered. 20,000 people got slaughtered on one day when they invaded the city. We talked about that the last time. And this is where we get the phrase, kill them all, let God sort them out. That was Innocent's words to Simon. God knows his own, slaughter everybody. I don't care if they're Orthodox Catholics. They'll be fine, they'll go to heaven, just kill them all. Kill anybody that you have any question about, ever. Not a nice time to be in, in, in really, pretty much anywhere. I was going to say Europe, but Asia's not doing real well right now either. Not a lot of fun. But there are good things going on, right? I had to do a little bit of that because it's been three weeks, but there's some good stuff going on. Also, within the first ten years of, um, of, of the 13th century, you have Francis of Assisi. Tell me, how many people have heard of St. Francis of Assisi? Good. Okay, St. Francis rocks. The nobleman from Italy, he enjoyed, he was young, he was rich, and he enjoyed being young and rich. Enjoyed having all those luxuries. Remember how many people so far we've seen that are like this? Augustine was a rich young guy who enjoyed the excesses of his youth. And Patrick was a rich young guy that had enjoyed the excesses of his youth. And Columba had been a rich young guy who had enjoyed the excesses of his youth. And Thomas of Becket had been a rich young guy who had enjoyed the excesses of his youth. Why do you think this is? That so many of the guys who rose to become great leaders of the church start off as rich young guys who enjoyed the excesses of their youth. Yeah, they were educated, so they, not only did they get a chance to read the Bible like Peter Waldo paid to get a Bible made for him, that's what launched his crusades and things, but beyond that, they, they could read it by the time it, it got to them. They, they actually had the background to understand it and to be able to read it. Yeah, uh, sometimes those who are more zealous for the for the Christian faith are those who are big sinners to start with. Yeah. They have the big conversion experience and want to correct what they do. Yeah, so you've got guys who have the disposable income to decide to go into 
fill in the blank. Who, who aren't just scraping together a living, but don't feel like they're going to be abandoning their family necessarily to, to want and need and things. They've got disposable income, they've got the education, and these are guys that have a motivation because they've gotten slapped in the face with, what have I been doing? And so, yeah, all these things kind of add up to being a nice recipe for people who will actually grow and change and make a dent somewhere. So, Francis had even made a name for himself as a soldier, which is interesting because he became so associated with peace. But he was, a, he was, I don't know, war hero is a really good way of saying it, but he was a, an accomplished soldier fighting for Assisi. But in 1204, he had a vision from God and withdrew from, from being filthy, stinking rich. In fact, he gave away all of his possessions, renounced his father, all of his rights of noble succession, and became a beggar. Fundamental change. Huge, humongous change with things. He heard a sermon on Matthew 10, when Jesus had sent out the twelve, and he said, As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. So don't take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or as a staff. And he said, this is talking to all of us. It's not just talking to the disciples. We all need to do this. And I need to take this seriously. So give him credit. So he stripped off all of his clothes and he gave them back to his father. And he decided he was going to be a wandering preacher who would do nothing. He would take no money for himself, no staff, no nothing. Only beg for what he needed on a given day. He's going to take Matthew 10 seriously for the entirety of his life. This, this is kind of a creepy picture. This is one of the least creepy pictures of this. There's an amazing number of paintings of him standing there as a youth, buck naked, wrapped in the clothes of a priest. Um, which has a totally different meaning to, to us today. But this is him turning over his, his clothes to his father. And technically it's not a priest, it's the, it's the Pope. The Pope coming and wrapping himself on the young man who's naked. Um... In a not creepy way. But the idea is saying, we need to, we need to, I don't care how, I don't care how ridiculous I seem, I don't care uh, how offensive it is, I'm throwing everything off. I'm, I'm stripping myself naked, and I am, I'm being God's pauper. No one would happen to similarly wandering preacher Peter Waldo. If you remember, Waldo went and talked to the Pope, and the Pope said, that sounds interesting, and then excommunicated Waldo. Uh, Francis went and talked to Pope Innocent, and he's like, I want to do this right. I want to dot every I, I want to cross every T, I want to get your permission to start a new monastic order. I don't want to get excommunicated after I leave here. So he sat down and talked with him and everything, and Innocent was very reluctant to allow it, because he thought there were already too many orders. Innocent's like, no, no, no. Everybody needs to believe the same thing and do it the same way. This, I'm a big proponent of this. Worship is all about order, right? Worship is all about uniformity. Everybody doing it the same way, everybody doing it comfortably, everybody doing it in uniform action, right? That's what worship is. Isn't it? How would you define worship? Giving praise to God. Giving praise to God. Saying God is worth it, right? That's exactly what Francis is trying to do, isn't it? So Francis is trying to worship. And, and he did. He did eventually convince uh, Innocent of this. Moreover, Innocent's cardinals convinced him of this. The cardinals around him were like, "This guy rocks. This guy's good. He's solid. We would be. He's going to have a bunch of followers. We would be remiss if we didn't actually license him to have a new monastic order." So he actually did sign off on it. The monks were tonsured and given brown or gray robes. Remember, tonsured is the haircut, right? Fancy haircut that says, "Hey, I'm holy now." Um, 
should back up and say, different monks have different colored robes. So you can tell the different monastic orders when you look at a painting of them or you look at pictures of them. The Augustinians wore black robes because they were, they were focused on being very solemn. They wanted to show solemnity, so black robes. The Cistercians, uh, Cistercians, I always say this wrong, Cistercians, wore white robes because they wanted to show that they were pure, they were apart from the world. The Franciscans wore brown or warm gray robes because they wanted to show simplicity, poverty, earthiness. The Dominicans, who came just a little bit later, wore black mantles over white robes. I'll have to explain this in a sec. Because Dominic's mother had a vision that a black and white dog was going to set fire to the world. Okay, so. <laughs> I'll explain that in a minute. But. Did you? Oh, well, then the hey, then you're fine. That's why they're black and white. But the Dominicans were often known as black friars. The Franciscans were known as gray friars, etc. as a result of them, okay? I don't know if it's related, but with the red hat on that guy? Oh. Is that important? Yeah, he's a cowboy. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no the, the red hat is, is something that came, um, sorry. Now, now I'm just going to look at that sea cowboy over here. It looked like. Um, no, the red hat indicates he's a cardinal. And, uh, which is in fact why we call cardinals cardinals. It's not the other way around. It's not like, hey, you look like that bird. It's, hey, that bird looks like a cardinal. So, anyway. Okay. Funky teaching moment number, number two here. Since the Dominicans were given authority over running the Inquisitions, over time they actually started getting feared by people. You start seeing these guys in the black robes coming, you get really spooked. Okay? Since the Franciscans were devoted to poverty and peace, they were oftentimes loved by people. So you see those brown robe people, and you go, oh, those are the nice guys. Black robe people, not the nice guys. Okay? Black ass. Yep. Now this is from the movie, The, the Name of the Rose. This is from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not being facetious. There's a reason why this juxtaposition of two dueling orders, the nice guys in the brown robes, the scary guys in the black robes still resonates with us in our European mindsets. These colors mean nothing to people in Japan. The, the, you're in black robes, that makes you a bad guy. You're in brown robes, that makes you a good guy. They have no sense of that. Why do we have an emotional reaction that the brown robe guys are the nice guys, the black robe guys are the scary guys? You can make an argument that it really comes out of this kind of thing, this kind of background. Oh. Imagery is important. It's important. This is why they picked these robes in the first place. What? What? Why we get Sarah last week? That's right. Imagery. Imagery is important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next 17 years, Francis travels all over Europe, all over the world, preaches peace, preaches a base, self-abasement, um, denying yourself, etc. Uh, he was so focused on peace, he preached the birds and the trees. I will preach to the trees. Be a good tree. Appreciate the God who created you. You go, because it's like a devotional? No, I'm preaching to the trees. <laughs> okay. So he called the sun brother sun. He called the moon sister moon. They're, they're, they're part of God's creation, and therefore they're part of, they're my brothers. They're my sisters. The trees are my brothers and sisters. Um, which is somewhere between really, 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 really sweet and a little, a little bizarre. And, and, and I want to give him credit for being really, really sweet. Um, Sarah wanted me to make sure that I, I included the apocryphal story of, of one particular time when he was preaching to the birds. 
who all listened intently and bowed their heads reverently as he was speaking to them. Um, and when he was finished, he made the sign of the cross over them, and they all flew away, separating themselves into four bands. One went north, one went south, one went east, and one went west, um, in order to share the message of Francis to the four corners of the earth, indicating that his message would go to the four corners of the earth. So, <laughs> so, so Francis was so focused on self-abasement, he was frequently ill, because he didn't take care of himself, and yet he called his various illnesses his beloved sisters, because they were so devoted to him. They were always with him. Like the say here, he took great comfort in the fact that his, his illnesses were devoted to him. My, my cold will not leave me. She loves me this much. I love my cold. I don't love my cold. I, I want my cold to go away. I want my cold to be just a little bit more promiscuous. I want, it, I want my cold to go somewhere else. I don't want my cold anymore. But this is his mindset. And, and even if you sit there and you say, well, that's, that's a kooky mindset, understand this, he's this committed to genuinely looking at every part of his life as being part of God's creation, a gift from God, um, part of the family and the, and, the, and the household of God. And this is what he preached everywhere he went. He's also famous for a lot of different firsts, and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about at least a couple of these. 1223, he's visiting the small town of Grecio, Grecio, um, and celebrating the uh, Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, and he realized we can't actually hold the Mass in the Hermitage. It's too small here. And so he went and he found a, a small uh, cave in the mountainside, and he put a manger there and brought in some animals and created the first nativity scene. And so whenever, if you appreciate nativity scenes, Pardon me. That goes back to St. Francis. He, he made the first one. And so, uh, appreciate that. Um, the next year, he had a vision of a crucified angel and then experienced the pain of crucifixion himself. The angel shot him at the various points in, 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 in his body. You see the little beams of angel light here hitting his hands and his side and his feet. And so, wounds supernaturally appeared on his hands and his feet and his side, and he bled profusely. And this is the first. Uh, an example of what we now know as stigmata, this phenomenon where uh, the wounds of Christ supposedly appear on people's hands and feet. Um, I say supposedly because uh, there, are, there are churches that, that consider this absolutely a move of God, that God will supernaturally make wounds appear on people so that they will bleed and feel the, the, the crucifixion of Christ. Um, most psychologists think you're, you're digging at your own flesh and you may not even realize that you're doing it. Um, it becomes almost an unconscious thing, and then you go, oh, look. Or you've scratched yourself, and you go, oh, look. And I, I didn't realize that I had done this. Whatever the case, there, there's, a, there's a movement of appreciating the supernaturally created wounds of Christ on you. And again, that can point back to, to St. Francis. Interesting character. And, and if you find him interesting, go, go, go to your local bookstore. Go to your local library. Look up things. Or to the internets. And go read stuff about... About him, because we're also going to move and talk about Dominic for a second. In twelve fourteen, Dominic saw a vision of the Rosary. Yes. Went back to Saint Francis. Uh, did he write that prayer for Saint? Uh, yeah, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know they always go make it. Yeah, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, I, I should have commented. Okay, Dominic. So we got Francis doing one kind of monasticism, Dominic doing a completely different kind of monasticism. 
He was the child of a wealthy Spanish family. Again, wealthy. Yeah, okay, yeah. And his, his bare mother made a pilgrimage to the Abbey of Santo Domingo to pray for a child. While she was there, she got a vision of that black and white dog coming from her womb that would set the, the sinful world on fire. He's right here. That's black and white dog. So, when she, when she actually did have a son, she named him Domingo, which we anglicize as Dominic. But named him after the, after the monastery where she had that, because she felt like it was the pilgrimage to the monastery that had brought her baby. Anyway, so Domingo, Dominic. Devoted student of theology, voracious reader, spent years and years in study, totally focused on, on, I want to be, I want to understand God, I want to understand theology as best as I possibly can. And yet, in 1191, Spain was devastated by famine, and so he sold all of his possessions, everything, including his rare expensive books, to feed the poor and to take care of them. Because it struck him, he said, would you have me study off these dead skins when men are dying of hunger? So I can't, I can't do this. I need to make sure that everything that I've learned actually gets applied to the people around me. It's not enough that I, I don't want to just be a Franciscan kind of monk where I'm, I'm, I'm off hanging around with people, even, even just helping them. I don't want to be an Augustinian monk where I'm, I'm, I'm surrounding myself with dusty tomes and learning and copying and all. Somehow I want to make sure that everything I'm learning here, and this is crucially important, is actually being applied out here to all the people around me. I want to be a teaching friar, a wandering monk that actually teaches people stuff because I've actually learned stuff, I've actually studied stuff. It's kind of a unique way of looking at it. He had a very different way of looking at what a monk is supposed to be doing. So, I'm going to combine the focus on education of the Benedictine monks and the Augustinian monks with the outward focus of the Franciscans. Can I do that? Is there a way to do that? So he developed an order dedicated to intense study and then applying what they learned to the lost and confused world. I'm going to be wandering teacher preachers. That's the way we're going to do this. I, I, I have a great deal of respect for the Dominicans. And I say this because sometimes, because they became the people that, um, uh, that ran the Inquisition for the most part, they get kind of a bum rap with a lot of people as being you know, very, very nasty. Um, he himself spent several years preaching and correcting the Cathars in southern France. It's like, they're wrong, and so I'm going to interact with them, and I'm going to show them why they're wrong. But that's exactly why the Pope said, you guys would be great for running the Inquisition. You're going to bring your great study to fixing the people, which is not exactly what Dominic was, was looking for. But yes, it did make them the people who are like, well, in our considered study, here's why you're so horribly, horribly wrong. But the whole idea of the papal Inquisition was originally to bring the lost back to Christ. We're going to save their souls, whether they like it or not. It's going to hurt him a lot, but it's going to hurt us more than hurt them. I think you're wrong. I think I'd rather be killed in the crusade, because then you just kill. Here you get tortured and then killed. I'd rather just be killed. Wait, did I... What did, what did, what did I say that I... Did I well, when, when you mentioned the Spanish Inquisition, you said it was worse before, because then they came... Oh, I see what you're saying. And I think, no, 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 okay, fair enough. This way they save your soul. Okay, we're gonna get we're gonna get into we're gonna get into this when we get into the Inquisition. So I'm not gonna talk about this much. But if okay, let's say let's say you and Scott are, are both Albigensians. Yes, Scott. Okay. Um, okay, which one of you wants to be a, a Waldensian? Waldensian. 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 
Okay. You snooze, you lose. You're, you're an Albigensian. So he's right, you're wrong, but you're both going to get killed. Um, well, that's the thing. If you're in the Albigensian Crusade, you're the Albigensian, right? Yeah. So I'm going to put up, put up, put up, lob off your head, you're dead, right? So I kill you, and I also send you to hell because you're a heretic, right? I walk over here, right over here, and you happen to be a Wolensian during the time when there's a Spanish Inquisition coming around. And so instead of just killing you, I'm going to torture you until you recant. Then I'm going to kill you. Okay? Now, at first blush, you're going to say, well, I'm just going to end up just as dead. This doesn't sound like very much fun. Except that if you recant, and I say, embrace Mother Church, and, and after peeling your flesh off with hot pincers okay. and things like that, you're going to go, okay. sure, yeah. now I'm going to kill you and release you from your suffering, because I love you. Because I'm going to, now, now I've killed you. You're burning in hell for eternity. You had a couple of days of torture, but now you're going to heaven because you're back in the church. Which one of these am I being nicer? When I just run around and kill you, or when I torture you and then kill you? I'm being nicer when I torture you and kill you because you I'm, I'm sending to hell for an eternity. You I'm putting through heck for two days. Except your theology is wrong. <laughs> but given the theology that these guys are playing by, and I, yes. I agree, the theology is, is, is goofy. Yeah. But given the theology that these guys are playing with, if I can just get you to say the words, you don't even need to mean it. If I can just get you to say the words that you recant of your heresy and you, you renounce Satan and you reaccept the church, I'm saving your soul. The Inquisition then becomes a grace. It's me actually showing you God's grace because I am torturing you until you come back into the fold. Again, we look at this and go, well, wait, okay, there's so many things wrong here. A, he's a Waldensian. We think he's the right one anyway in this, in this. Anyway, but beyond that, just the whole idea of, oh, you don't even need to mean it. Just say the words and then everything's great. You know, just cross yourself and everything's cool. But now that's just wrong. It's so wrong on so many different levels. But when you realize what they're coming from, the perspective that they're coming from, the early Inquisition, now later Inquisition, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You have absolute power over entire regions that everybody lives in fear of you and you can control their things. Yeah, later Inquisitors got a little. You join the Inquisition because you like torturing people. You get you get kind of creepy. And then you get people like, uh, well, I'm not even going to get it. Okay, anyway, point is, is the early Inquisition, the point of it was to try to do something like the Albigensian Crusade more fairly and in a way that actually saves them rather than just purging the church. So, you, but again, put it in context. So, Dominic preached total devotion, especially to prayer and study. He's like, you absolutely focus on prayer, absolutely focus on study, absolutely need to nail yourself to this. In 1214, supposedly he received a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary while praying at a church, and she was holding her hands the rosary. And she was explaining to him how he needed to use the rosary in order to pray. I don't know, how, how familiar are you with the rosary and praying the rosary? Okay, some of you. Rosary is this necklace of beads, and it's a specific, um, there's specific numbers of beads that are in a specific order and things broken out. Um, and, and you use it as a focal point for prayer. They refer to it as a sacramental. A sacramental is anything that um, draws, it has, it has a, 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 a 
a, a grace that it imparts to you when you use it for godly principles. So like holy water is a sacramental. Uh, the rosary is a sacramental. And if, if you use the rosary correctly, it imparts God's grace to you in a way that wouldn't if you didn't use it when you pray. Um, so, uh, the, the prayers that compose the rosary are arranged in sets of ten Hail Mary prayers, which is why you get these sets of ten beads in a row. You, you, you push each bead as you say your Hail Mary, and, and you remind yourself that you've said how many you've done. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I say it that way because I, I'm a bad Catholic. Most Catholics can recite this really crazy fast because you're not just saying ten Hail Marys. You're saying multiple sets of ten Hail Marys. You want to get through those as quickly as you possibly can, right? So you're like an auctioneer. Each one preceded by an Our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come to the wizard. Again, say it quickly because you got a lot of these to get through. And each one followed by a glory be to the Father prayer. Glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning and is now and will be forever. Amen. And you, and you go through all these. Now, it breaks my heart that they refer to them as a Hail Mary or as the Our Father, because that makes no grammatical sense. Can you talk about an, an Our Father? Does that make any... It, it, it's not grammatical at all. All it does is becomes just a title for the prayer. It's a meaningless title other than it just points to the prayer. And any time that you take a prayer and throw it toward God meaninglessly, as if it were an incantation, it just it breaks my heart. Um... The Catholics are not the only ones guilty of this. We all do this at one point or another. But this is just the most egregious form of a prayer is just something we throw at God. It's not communication with God. I don't mean any of this. Um, in the same way that uh, some people, when they do their, their good night prayers. Um, That's what I was going to say. Like I taught my kids when they were little enough. The girls now, now I lay me down to sleep. And it's like when you're, are they really thinking, are they realizing all the time, are like, you talking to God now, or is it just, I'm going to bed, I'm tired, you know, I've had my shower, I've done stuff, I've done that, and they'll go to bed, and I call them every night, and I'll say, have you brushed your teeth, say your prayers, and it's like, okay, they say their prayers when they're asleep, but is there that connection, or is it just, okay, it's time for bed, now, so I'm going to Exactly. Because I think this little poem now, because I'm going to sleep, and I'm like, brushing their teeth, or whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like part of the nighttime routine, but I want it to be more what? Emotion there too, but it's just... Not that there's anything wrong with my prayer. I, I'm laying me down to sleep, and I pray that God keeps my soul, you know, tonight, and I it just protect me and keep me. And no, it's it's a, a good prayer. But any prayer that you say the same prayer exactly the same way over and over and over again can devolve into what you know we've talked about before as the Eplatonista factor. You know, where you where you you're, you're saying words that mean nothing to you anymore because they're just holy words. It's a Star Trek episode. Many people remember this. There's a Star Trek episode where they go to a place where the, they talk about these holy words, Eplet Nista, and, and Kirk's like, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And the guy's like, yeah, say the holy words, Eplet Nista. He's like, I don't understand. And, and, and he's like, Eplet Nista in order forum pertum tuum. It's like, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. Oh, I see. You keep saying these words so many times that they no longer mean anything to you. They're just babble of syllables. To the point to which we are just eplatonisting our prayers, they don't mean anything anymore. 
it doesn't mean that the prayer is the, uh, yeah, it, if we do it out of habit, if we do it out of discipline, that's great. If we do it out of habit, that's bad. Ironically, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer today in, in, our, in our sermon, so we'll, we'll chat a little bit about this. But this idea of meaning what you're saying, yeah? Uh, we discussed this before, and uh, I think that there's a, a point where yes, something can be repetitious, but then if it's in your mind, but it's in your mind. Uh, you look back on it at the time and it will perhaps be. It sure can. It sure can. Which, which is why I go back to the even now I lay me down to sleep, I, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You go. Even that, which is a relatively simple prayer, if you do it out of discipline, if you say, I'm going to do this, I want to remind myself every night that we're going to pray and I'm going to remind myself of this, that is something that can echo in your mind in, in important points of your life. I want the person to for a couple of reasons. One is because that way they've got that, you know, it's keeping the, the fact that, that they're here and that they have things because of the fact of God. That the world didn't just happen. You know, right. And you should be thankful for everything you have. You know, and also because then there's a, I don't know, if, if something does happen and that they need to, you know, we'll pray about it. They've got that where they feel that they pray every night, you know, yep. there's a, a dialogue or whatever. Yep. I mean, they're only six and eight, but I'm thinking that way yep. keeps them to where, you know, if you tell a little child who's never prayed before, well, you know, pray about it. But that they have a relationship with a God who actually wants to listen to them. And every day, I know for a fact that that way, because I mean, I have them on the weekends, my granddaughters, I have them on the weekends, they come see me, but they're home with mommy and daddy through the week. And this way, if I know that they're, no, say your prayers before you eat. Say your prayers before you go to bed. So I know that every day, if they think about yep. the fact that you know, thinking about God, think about Jesus, so like that, rather than all through the week, they don't, they don't, you know, say a prayer or anything. And he's just not on their mind. Exactly. And this way, it kind of, so it is kind of a habit, but it's also I want to kind of keep it. Yep. You know, words. Or, or, or another. I mean, is it bad? Then? No, I think that's, I think that's great. It just, you just need to always make sure that we're consciously doing it. And, and this is why I say the difference between discipline and habit. Discipline means every day I'm reminding myself to do this. Habit, um, I remember being really tired one time driving home from school, from college. I was, it was really late. And I realized, oh, I have to make sure I take that turn off uh, to, to get to, um, to I-55. Apparently I did at some point. You know, I, I took it, but I had no recollection of taking it. I did it out of habit. Which is good because it got me home, but it's a little scary that you go, wait, I just wasn't thinking and I did it? That's not good. Everything you want to do, you want to make sure it's conscious. Or maybe a, another example of this, remove it from the whole prayer part of it. Another example of this would be the difference between having hidden my, thy word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. You know, knowing scripture and having scripture in your heart and, and being able to have that echo in your mind, like Bill's talking about, versus people who proof text. I'm just going to keep throwing a verse out of context out. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's more like I'm slapping down a card and saying, Jim. Yeah. Can't you have a habit to discipline yourself? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure, I'll give that to you. Yeah, no, I The one triggers the other. The one triggers the other. You just have to make sure. I, I think it's just really important, though, that you don't, you don't do things out of rote. You don't do things out, out of habit. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I always make sure that I, I, I pray every morning before I get out of bed. So, I mean, it's it's a habit, and yet it's also 
I want to make sure it's a discipline. It's not like, well, i got to do this because this is what I do every day. It's like, no. Like, I want to discipline myself to doing this before I get up. Okay. I can see what you're saying. But, but all this is, is getting at is, and all I'm getting at here is I'm not trying to disc Catholicism because this is just a, a wonderful, tangible example of what any of us can do is this idea of um, throwing out meaningless babble or throwing out things just because we're habitually doing them as opposed to actually doing them. Anyway, uh, there's also a lot of other complicated prayers that you can do. If you look at it, there's just all sorts of different ways that you can go about this. It's it's like um, I don't know, it's like a really complicated card game. You can take all sorts of permutations on it that you want. Now, I say that he supposedly received this vision because he never commented on it, and the first person that did was 250 years after Dominic died and uh, in, in support of using the rosary. And, and they're like, basically, who, who better to ground this in than the hero of orthodoxy? The guy who was the father of all the people that, that torture heretics. This guy said the rosary rocked, so let's do the rosary. I have no reason to believe that Dominic ever heard of it. Plus the idea of, I had a fully formed picture of the Virgin Mary holding a rosary and she explained to me how this all worked. I don't buy it. I think this is something that grew up over time and then got retroactively slapped onto Dominic. Because there's no reason for us to believe Dominic actually believed that or, or had that vision other than tradition says. But anyway. Good stuff. But then also, um, we're not even out there. We're 12.15 for crying out loud. 12.15, you get the fourth Lateran Council being held. And Pope Innocent III, he, he's, he's actually, he ends up dying the next year. But he's nearing the end of his papacy, and he's just like, I want to be remembered for something. And my last crusade kind of was a flaw. Uh, the, the crusade that we got going in, in, in France is ongoing. So tell you what, I'm going to call up one more Lateran Council in the Lateran Palace. That's what it's called, the Lateran Council. We're going to address key issues of how to deal with anybody who opposes Rome. For instance, we're going to we're going to condemn the Waldensians and the Cathars. You, you, you've condemned them already. You're in the process of killing them. Why do you need to condemn them again? Because they're bad. I know, but you've already done this. They're bad. Fine. They're bad again. They're still bad. They're bad people. And so the lands of Count Raymond of Toulouse, who had supported the Cathars, those were all given over to Simon of Montfort because he's leading the crusade, so there you go. Um, in addition, several other specific heresies are condemned. Specifically, transubstantiation is upheld. Anybody who says that transubstantiation... Remember, what's transubstantiation? Yeah. When you take communion, like we're going to be taking in a couple hours here, when you take communion, that actually turns into the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ. And then later on, people went, well... Ish, you know, it, it it still looks like bread and wine, but it is actually physically blood and flesh. But if you don't believe that, you're standing against Rome. Obviously, we would stand with the Waldensians, going, I'm, I'm, "I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said this is my flesh and this is my blood." But so, uh, but so he specifically says, "This is a good litmus test." Anybody who says that you're not actually eating Jesus and drinking Jesus, they're not Catholics. They're condemned. They have 69 different canons by the end of this thing, including that no new religious orders are going to be allowed because uniformity is by definition worship, right? So no more, enough of this. I got, I got snookered into doing the whole Franciscan thing, but no more. 
that all Christians must confess their sins at least once a year. Now, if you remember, the Celts were telling people, confess your sins all the time. If you sin, confess it. Tell somebody that you sinned and help, have them hold you accountable to getting that right with God. Sin is something that we all struggle with. Sin is something we shouldn't do. If you screw up, confess it and work through it. Right? And Rome said, no, 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 no. Um, here, they're saying, you, you have to release that sin entirely, and if you don't, you're in the danger of being excommunicated. So people only kind of clumped all their sins at once, like once a year, or never. But, but they're like, you got to at least go once a year and tell anonymously, go tell a priest in a booth somewhere that you did something naughty so you can be forgiven. He'll tell you to, to say some Hail Marys, he'll tell you to do some Our Fathers, and then you'll be better. And the Celts are going, no, 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 that's not at all the way this works. Which is why Rome was cracking down on the Celts for this kind of stuff, right? All doctors must call on a priest to pray for their patients before administering any physical aid. Okay? There's a growing superstition regarding physicians that somehow it must be witchcraft because they're not healing you by prayer, so I don't know what they're doing. And some church leaders felt like it showed a lack of piety to deal with physical aid before you deal with spiritual aid. What are the pros and cons of this? Bleeding to death, you'd rather have that bandage put on than waiting for peace. That'd be nice. Charles would say you realize all the healing. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'd have to appreciate the older time, because that's what you're doing. Yeah, or, or just <coughs> hang on, you know, close the wound and let the, wait for the priest. Yeah. Well, and, um, I mean, you've heard me say before, we probably ought to reach for prayer before we just knee-jerk reach for an aspirin. Probably not a bad idea. Which is not to say reaching for an aspirin is sinful, but you probably ought to go, before you just automatically go, pharmaceutical aid, wait, Lord, please take away this headache. At least start with some of that. I understand the rationale here, but prohibiting any kind of any kind of physical aid until you've gotten spiritual aid, yeah, now, now you have to have a priest around you all the time, which is not a bad thing, but, um, but yeah, it, you, you run the risk of a lot of people dying a lot. But also that all Jews and Muslims have to follow certain rules if they're going to try to live within Christian societies. If you're going to be a Jew and be around Christians, we're going to have to change a few things. So, wacky funness. Prefiguring the Nazis, Rome demanded that all Jews and Muslims wear a symbol on their clothes that clearly marks them as pagans. Jews may be distinguished from others, that they may be distinguished from others. We decree and emphatically command that in the center of the breast of their garments, they shall wear an oval badge, the measure of one finger in width and one half a palm in height. We forbid them, moreover, to work publicly on Sundays and on festivals. Unless they scandalize Christians or be scandalized by Christians, we wish and ordain that during Holy Week they shall not leave their houses at all. This way we honor Christ, by making sure that anybody who is a Jew or Muslim has something on their clothes that automatically tells you they're not you. They're a bunch of pagans. Prohibited from holding any kind of public office or from saying anything negative about Jesus or about Christians. If they say anything negative about a, about a Christian or about the church in Rome or even in the case of Jews who had been converted to Christianity by taking part in any of their own Jewish traditions. If you are a Messianic Jew, you are a Christian who has come from a Jewish background, for you to take part in Hanukkah, Passover Seder, anything like that, that is all going to be bad. It's all prohibited. Any of these offenses are, could be punishable by exile or death. All 
all of these offenses require immediate confiscation of all of your lands and property. Which interestingly means they get found guilty of this a lot. Whether they did anything, whether there's any evidence of any guilt, they kept getting found guilty a lot. I saw him practicing his his uh, his hanny, hanny thing, hanneke thing. I saw him doing that. What do you mean? Well, he lit a candle, didn't he? We all have candles. It's, it's the 13th century. We all have candles. No, he lit a candle during his uh, hanneke thingy. So he's Jewish. So I get his property, right? Yep. So the person who rats announced the one who gets the property? Usually, yeah. Why is that a problem? Well, what it is is the church decides. And, and usually it's either the church or the person that rides them out that gets the property. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the point yet where it's like that whole innocent until proven guilty thing and uh, false claims get you in trouble. It's like, no, 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 we're not doing any of that yet. Well, again, most people don't have one. And we're going to talk about next time. Right. When we get to the Council of Toulouse in 1229, um, it, it's actually prohibited that you have a Bible. The Bible is on the banned list by the church. Having a Bible is, a, is an offense punishable by death. Wow. So. Because you wouldn't want to get any ideas. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because that's what happened to Waldo. Waldo got his hands on a Bible, and he read it, and he thought he knew what he was doing. All of a sudden, he's just like, wait, we should be caring about people. We should be preaching the gospel to people. We should be um, maybe doing this in their own language. We should be uh, yada, yada, yada. Worst thing that you can do as a Catholic is to get your hands on your own Bible. And so it is a crime punishable by death to have a Bible if you're a Catholic. Um, to be honest, that is still kind of rippling through today. It wasn't until Pope John Paul uh, uh, the second in, uh, was it like the 80s? You know wasn't until then that he's like, I think every Catholic should actually have a Bible. I think every Catholic should actually read the Catechism. And most of his most of his cardinals were like, "You're a crazy man," and, and, and he came under a lot of fire. What? Now, yeah, yeah. Pope John Paul II back in yeah. So like for seven hundred years, seven hundred and sixty years. Um, the official line of the Catholic Church is that you really shouldn't be reading your Bible. Now, it wasn't, didn't always stay punishable by death, obviously. But the official line is you really shouldn't be reading it. That's for priests and cardinals to be doing, not you. Um, and that's why I said, you know, I like, I actually like Pope John Paul for doing that. He came under a lot of fire, got in a lot of trouble with his cardinals for saying that Catholics really ought to read their Bibles. Well, then how are they supposed to have, like, know what they should be doing to, to go to confess and everything if they didn't? what they should have been doing, how did they... Yeah. I mean, this sounds very simple, but how would you know you're being bad if you didn't read what told you what was being bad? Priest tells so you. So why would you... The priest tells so you. So whatever the priest said was bad and, and now it's just it. Wait, that... Again, we're 300 years early, but that is the essential argument that is used against uh, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, who's coming up saying, I think we're doing it wrong. The main argument used against him is, how dare you speak against the hierarchy of the church? We decide what truth is. He's like, but I'm reading the Bible, and this is different from what the Bible says. So it would be all their interpretation. And one priest, kind of have, if they're so, 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 so,
two priests was two priests at a Bible. <coughs> you know, this one's seen it one way and that one's seen it the other. Well, because they, they would, what, I, I, what would ultimately happen is they would, they would bump it up to the cardinal or the bishop or ultimately to the pope and say, well, what is the official doctrine of the church on this? This is why they started putting together the catechism or the teaching of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. This is what we officially believe on these things. And so if, if Mark or Michael or Donna, you were to open up your Bibles and say, but Kevin, I, I, don't, I don't see that this is what this is saying. I would say you are going against the official doctrine of this church. I'd slap the statement of faith at you when I would say, you know, this is what I believe in since I'm your priest and I stand between you and God. I'm telling you truth. You, for you to think that you can interpret truth to me is blasphemous because I stand in, in England, they, in the Church of England, we still even refer to them oftentimes as vicars, standing vicariously in the place of Christ. I am a vicar. I am Christ and you are differing from me or Pope sitting in the in, in, in the in the throne, ex cathedra speaking, he's like, I am speaking from God. You don't get to differ from me on this. Um, so it it gets it gets a little colorful um, as to as to who gets to decide that sort of stuff and why they get to decide that stuff. And you realize that by the time you get to the Reformation in three hundred years, by the time you get to the to the Reformation, it's gone beyond just I think we can tweak it. That's what Erasmus tried to do. Let's just fix this. Can we, I think we've lost what we're supposed to do. Can we fix this? And you've got people like Martin Luther and Jean Calvin and Menno Simons basically said, I'm not sure we can fix it. Well, give them credit. Luther tried to fix it from within. Um, but, but it became very clear. I don't think this is fixable. I think, it, I think that for me to stand for truth, I'm going to have to stand apart from this church. Now, the church then did get, has had reformations within the Catholic Church since then. But at that point in history, it wasn't something that was just tweakable. It was something that was going to have to be broken <coughs> and reconstructed. And all this was based on that everyone is the same thing. Everyone is the same thing. By definition, God honor. Because, I mean, yeah, having unity can honor God, can it? Just the mere fact of having unity. Sure, like when we recite the, the Apostles' Creed together, and you go, yeah, that that can honor God. But unity in and of itself does not necessarily honor God. We can be unified in doing completely wrong things, can't we? We can all agree that we should sacrifice a cliff. Everybody agrees, we're all in unity, therefore it honors God. Go, no, 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 it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, but the idea here is, at this time in history, if we're all unified under Rome, that by definition honors God. And that is an inherently dangerous way of looking at things. Um, to, but to finish off the Lateran Council, one final issue, one major thing, and this was one that he absolutely insisted on, there has to be a fifth crusade. Because the fourth crusade stunk, we've got to do another one. We've got to get this under the wire before I die. I want to get me one, and it's got to go to the Holy Land. And it's got to be under the direct supervision of the Pope, because we let the Venetians run the last one, and that went bad. If the papacy runs this one, it'll work. This will work good, because we know what we're doing. And he hoped that this way he'd have some sort of lasting legacy as this soldier for truth. This is what's going to work. <laughs> I started late, so if you'll give me two more minutes, let's end with this. For those of you that care about this sort of thing, remember King John of England, right? Okay. 
Same year as the Lateran Council, 1215, sulked back to England after losing to Philip again in France, because he always loses to Philip, because Philip is much stronger than John. So he, he, he sulks back to find that his own nobles are marching against him, because he's a horrible king. And, and, and they're like, you're weak and you're bad. And they're led by a guy named Robert Fitzwalter, and they call themselves the Army of God. And they say, you are incompetent and you are corrupt. We're going to stop you now. So being much stronger than John's forces, they were able to force him to sign a great charter, i.e. the Magna Carta, great charter, that demanded reforms from the king. Including this, they demanded that free men under the protection of law were thus exempt from unlawful seizure, from wrongful torture, from taxation without the approval of the barons, etc. You don't get to ignore the law. In essence, what they're saying is that the king himself is under the law. And John and all the French kings and all the German kings, everybody had always said, the kings make the law. The law is under the king, and the king can go to the law whenever he wants to. In England, they said, no, no. You can write whatever laws you want to write, and as long as it's accepted by the barons, we'll accept that, but then you have to follow those laws. You're not exempt from the law, and we're all going to force you to sign this. So, not only has this set a huge precedent throughout all of Europe in general with this, but it was also the first document of this kind to actually specifically address not only nobles, but all free men. Everybody gets the right to be under the law. So it's a huge, important precursor to things like our own Constitution. Now, if you actually read the Magna Carta, it doesn't read like our Constitution. There's a lot of other things in there you don't want. I don't like that. But as a precedent, it's huge. Absolutely huge. So John immediately appealed to the Pope and said, Pope, we have always supported your papacy. My dad helped get you your papacy. Help me out here. Now, you're innocent. What do you do? There you go. Oh, go to crusade. We'll see what we can do about it. Innocent sides with John. He annuls the document. He excommunicated everybody that was involved with it. This is done. We're nipping this in the bud. Because John has supported the papacy, and I'm one pope that likes to be supported by my kings. This is over. To which the barons ignored the excommunication, said, no, we aren't excommunicated. Thank you very much. And the document isn't annulled. So this is a precedent of another thing now. It's not just a precedent of telling the king, hey, stop it, you're under the law. This is also a precedent of telling the pope, no, I don't think you will excommunicate me today. I don't think I'm going to let you do that. We're not excommunicated, and this isn't enough. And we're having a major civil war against our own king to depose our own king. And it goes on until finally John dies, and a guy named William Marshall, who is like the quintessential knight of the Middle Ages. Wish I had time to talk about him. Rockingly cool guy. William Marshall took over as Lord Protector for the new toddler king and reinstated the Magna Carta. He said, no, the king is under the law, and I will make sure that this king is under the law. So it's kind of a booyah thing. 1217, we start a new crusade, because that always ends well. As always, as we go through this history, there's all sorts of interesting, colorful things going on. There's colorful characters to, to latch on to. There's names and dates that you can remember or not. But what it really comes down to is trying to understand the, the, the things that people did well in history and the mistakes that people made in history, and then to look at what we do now and say, can we learn from that? That whole discussion of, um, of the rosary is helpful to sit there and go, wait, can you have a habit of having a discipline? You know, is it okay to have 
habits that, that force you to stop and think about things. Yes, but the key is that you stop and think about things. To the degree to which we eat platonista through these things and don't mean them and just throw them out as some sort of mystical incantation, we've missed the point of what prayer is all about. Um, to the degree to which we say, if I, I, if I can just justify the horrors that I inflict on other people, that this is for their own good, then that makes it okay. If we just all agree, then that makes it worshipful. If we just all, how many of these different things can we apply to our situation today where we say, stop, how do we make sure that we're actually honoring Christ? And the best way that I know to do it is exactly the thing that kept getting people in trouble back then, is to go back to scripture. Say, what does the Bible actually say about this stuff? And ironically, as part of the Bible, we have Paul actually talking to the Bereans going, you guys second guess me by checking everything against scripture. Booyah, that's exactly what you should do. So scripture even tells us that we should second guess everything and go back to scripture. So I encourage you guys to, to, to think that through and to really focus on doing your own Bible study and going, what does scripture actually say about this stuff? Let's close with that. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to have your word open to us. Thank you for the opportunity to have your living word in our hearts. Help us to know your word. Help us to, to have it echoing in our, in our hearts but never in such a way that we we just flip it out without thinking about it, but rather so that we can think about it. We give you all this, we give you our lives, Lord, and pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Chickens and, and um, 